Our scripture reading for today is the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. That which was from the beginning. This is the only introduction to this letter that we get. He's launching into what he wants to say without any prelude, with no special greeting. John begins his first letter similarly to the way that he began the Gospel of John, written earlier, in which he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you have a continuation of those two verses at the bottom of your bulletin. That's from the Gospel, John. There can be no doubt that John has no desire or ambition other than to point to and to focus people's attention on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is also, according to his descriptions here, described these ways. That which was from the beginning, in the word of life, in verse 1, the eternal life, in verse 2, and the Son of the Father, in verse 3. He is the one, John is in these verses making it clear that he knew intimately and personally. But what does the beginning refer to? He says here, that which was from the beginning. Is it related to John's eyewitness testimony that follows concerning Christ? As we look at it, we know, of course, that it has some significance, some importance, or John would not launch into the beginning as a starting point for this letter. In order to share with John the faith that he has in Jesus Christ, we must understand exactly what he is saying about Christ and who he is saying Christ is. And this reference to the beginning is as important as anything that John has to say about Christ. <coughs> now, there's a lot in this, in this letter, this first letter that John wrote, one of three. And John wants to avoid any confusion at the outset. By setting forward his premise, in other words, what he believes, what he holds is the firm foundation of his faith, exactly what the truth is, so that nobody can go on and take this letter and start reading it and get entwined in it without first having to come to a personal decision about this one whom John lives for, whom John is writing about, this Jesus Christ. For with the Christ that John knows, faith is everything. Without belief in him, John's letter is meaningless and worthless. For Christ is the cornerstone of his faith. Now one of the real issues of the first paragraph of this letter is the issue of eyewitness testimony. And there is a reason behind John's use of this as proof of what he says. But as we look at the opening, and this is what it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We must understand exactly what John is claiming that he heard, saw, and touched. He is not claiming that he was there at the beginning, okay? 
He's not saying, I was there at the beginning. This is what I saw. He is saying that that which was there at the beginning, he saw with his own eyes sometime at a later date, after the beginning. And to avoid confusion, let us clear up the wording of that first phrase. The thing that is described as having existence at the very beginning is the person of Jesus Christ. Now we can trace the careers of prominent people from their beginnings through to their success. And when we think of human beings, we think of parents, we think of families, infants, being everybody being a child at one point, birthdays, all of those human influences, as well as the characteristics that each person has, which speak of an individual being born and raised, growing up to be someone great and influential. <clears throat> Here, however, the beginning that John is speaking of is not the beginning that we speak of and think of when we think of human people. He is not speaking of the conception of a child. The beginning he refers to goes back to the origin, the beginning of everything, in an absolute sense. What he is saying, referring to Jesus as that which was from the beginning, is that Jesus was before all things. Jesus Christ existed. The one called here elsewhere, the word of life, was even at the beginning of everything else. Said in another way, John is affirming that Jesus Christ is from eternity. He was not created because if he had been a creature, it would be impossible to say that he was from the beginning. A creature has a creator, and that creator exists before the creature. A creature such as we are comes into being by the work of the creator. The creature has a beginning. The creator exists before the beginning of the creature. Therefore, we are the creatures. Christ is the divine creator whose existence simply was. All this gets somewhat confusing. In our finite minds, we are full of curiosity. And one of the questions we are most persistent in asking is how? How? How, how did this happen? John's statement here concerning Christ is definitive. But when we accept the statement that he was from the beginning, that pesky little Irresistible question, how, comes to our minds. Okay, so Christ was there from the beginning. But how did he get there? How did God come into being? Now, obviously, you realize in that last statement I've made that I've made a theological point. How I talked about Christ and then how did God come into being? One and the same. We'll see that later. But obviously, John's statement only goes so far in answering that question. It reveals that God simply was, was to be from the beginning. And before that, we have no vision. We cannot see any further back than that part which John is referring to as the beginning, at which point Christ already was. And that is the point from which no more how can be answered. The divine Christ he existed from eternity. He was. He is not a, a creature. He's not something created by another person or by another force. He is not even a creature, a person created by God the Father. Now people come, seek to come out with simple, this world definitions and explanations of other world realities which are mysteries. Here are a few examples of areas that people are eager to explain. 
How does the Trinity work? What is the Trinity? How Jesus Christ was both fully divine, fully God, and at the same time fully human. How God came into being. Such efforts are futile, and they're oftentimes extremely unfortunate and particularly dangerous. Here's an attempt at explaining such a mystery heard recently. A lady said she had given some students in a class she was teaching this illustration of the Trinity. <clears throat> this is sort of how the Trinity works. Here is your teacher, I am a teacher. You think of me one way. At home, I am a mother and a parent. My family thinks of me another way. In church, they think of me another way. When I'm at work, those people think of me in another way as a different person. That's how the Trinity is, one God. Unfortunately, that explanation does a terrible job of explaining the Trinity. The most obvious problem being that God is not described as one person looked at three different ways. In other words, a teacher, a mother, a parent, a worker, a church member. But one God in three distinct persons. So that explanation is not only a failure, it's completely wrong. It fails to achieve the purpose. And this is the point. It fails to achieve the purpose, as do most attempts to draw human parallels to spiritual truths that are by their very nature mysteries, impossible to reconcile in human minds. Now, some truths you'll have to understand as you go through God's Word. Some truths can only be stated as facts. You just take it from there. In other words, this is what it says, and go from there. And as we state them, we are simply trusting in God to show us their truth to the degree that we need to understand them, knowing that until we see more clearly on the other side of the grave, those truths will continue to present great mysteries to us. Unfortunately, people can focus so much time and effort <clears throat> on the mysteries of Scripture that they get all confused and fouled up in their beliefs. And fouled up beliefs will always result in fouled up living, because wrong theology breeds wrong living. Now, perhaps as we have over the past couple of weeks been going through different areas of Scripture, we get to this point here in 1 John, you say, wow, this is a lot of theology. It is. But in order to understand what John is telling us and to understand the implications in our life, we'll get to them today as we look through this, this paragraph, but in order to understand them, you have to understand the fundamentals of the faith. And John is doing nothing other than saying, these are the fundamentals of the faith. But it is so important for us that we should only go so far and no farther in our attempts to unravel mysteries. Now don't misunderstand, I am not saying or trying to encourage people not to look at God's word and try to figure out exactly what God is saying, even in the areas that are mysteries. By no means. We should spend our time considering God's word, considering the mysteries as well, to see if the Holy Spirit will give us guidance, a greater understanding. But we must be willing to accept not having the answers and not try instead to explain away the mysteries as though they were as simple as two plus two. For there is great danger in lying in wait 
upon those who will oversimplify God's word as there is the same danger in those who will make what God makes simple so complicated it's impossible to understand. Throughout the ages, from the time at which John wrote this letter up to the present, there have been numerous heresies built upon reading extra into Scripture than what is there or neglecting to believe crucial parts of what Scripture teaches, the fundamentals of the faith. And we take confidence in this. John is qualified to teach us what to believe. And this letter further is part of God's complete word. So we have launched pell-mell headlong into this letter. Even as the letter draws us in. It's no, there's no in this thing. Hello, how are you doing? There's no to the believers in Asia. There's no, for this reason, I write this to you. But as we examine these first verses, as we have already begun to do, we will find two things presented to us that we need to look for and to take heart in. The first is who Jesus Christ really is. And the second is who we are in relationship to Jesus Christ. John is hard-hitting. There are no words minced with him. He says it like it is. And when we get a picture for what he is saying... We see that in writing the truth about Jesus Christ, he was destroying at many points. He was revealing the truth, but he was also destroying arguments that were heresies of that day. That were things that people believed and were teaching that were totally untrue. We've been on the track of the fact that John begins with, that Jesus Christ was from the beginning. Now, it may seem unnecessary to say this, given the word that Jesus Christ was from the beginning, but the most obvious things are often, under, often left unsaid. And I find that out from Sandy. Just say, well, you assumed that. You assumed everybody knows that, but perhaps they don't. And so, lest I be guilty of that here, what we see here is that if Jesus was from the beginning, the fact is that Jesus Christ is God. John is showing by the fact that Jesus Christ was from the beginning that he is no less than, but equal to, and God himself. He is not a human being, no different than you or me. He was not even a special prophet, given special power by the Holy Spirit. And many people believe that. Many people who call themselves Christians will say this about Jesus Christ, that he was a great prophet, a teacher full of the Spirit, but nothing more special than that. And that is part of what was going around when John wrote this letter. But what was being taught was even more complicated than that, and we'll get to some of those complications shortly. As we examine what John says concerning Christ, we look to his credentials. What right does John have to tell us anything about this? For there is no doubt, as you look here, that he is saying, my testimony is part of the evidence of the truth of what I'm writing. Well, John was close to the source, for he was not only one of the chosen twelve, he was also a cousin of Jesus, his mother and Mary being sisters. He was the one described as the disciple Jesus loved. He was one of the inner three among the twelve, one of the three who were with Jesus when he was transformed before their very eyes on the mountaintop and met with Moses and Elijah. He was one of the three called into the inner room 
able to witness Jesus as he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was one of the three who was taken further into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray on that fateful night when Jesus was betrayed. He was one of the first ones to see the empty tomb after the women came back and told the disciples, He's gone. To see the empty tomb and to see the burial cloths folded up. And of course, he was one of those who saw and touched the risen Lord. So we can accept his witness. And, okay, should we be hesitant to accept what John writes and says, I have seen, I have touched, I have heard? Should we be hesitant? We know that nowhere in these verses does John say, I. Okay, I just said, I have seen. He never says that. All along, if you look, he uses the first person plural. In other words, we. We. <clears throat> now you may say, well, that was possibly because John was quoting this letter. He was, he was uh, dictating and someone else was transcribing. An amanuensis, that person was called in, in uh, New Testament times. He dictated, someone else transcribed. But that's, there's more to it than that. The use of we is significant when we look at his testimony because he is not claiming, you know, we as in the man who writes this and I are saying this. He is claiming that we testified to this. We saw this. We witnessed it. We heard it. We touched. <clears throat> From the standpoint of the Jewish faith, as we uh, looked at even in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning in the adult Sunday school class, there were two things by which in that Hebrews chapter 6 passage that God said, my testimony has been proved by two unchangeable things. Well, this was part of the Jewish faith. And it was this, <clears throat> that nothing was to be established on the testimony of only one witness. There had to be two or more in order to prove that something was true. I guess they realized how easily one person could lie. So even John, from his privileged position, John easily could have said, Now, I am an apostle. And I say this to you, and you better believe it. But he doesn't do this. Instead, what he says is, Don't just believe me. I'm asking you to realize that we saw it. We touched him. It's us. So you have to deal with that issue. That John was not the only one, even though he was one of the inner circle, one of the twelve apostles. He is saying, there were a bunch of us who saw this, who were eyewitnesses, and touched it. And he wants to make sure that his readers understand that he is among a number of others, and he is not just calling his own testimony in, he is calling all of their testimony. So when he who hear about Christ have to deal with this issue. It may seem a simple issue. But the facts about Jesus Christ have been established by the witness of many people. We are not going to God's word and saying, okay, this is what one person says. Will you accept it or not? Well, so-and-so said that. Who am I going to believe? Because what we have here is the testimony that many people are witnesses of this about Jesus Christ. Are they all wrong? If not, then we must believe. 
there were some people going around teaching wrong things about Christ. And these people weren't eyewitnesses. They weren't apostles like John and the others were. So that the truth needed to be proclaimed, as John does it here, in a lasting way, which we have because it was written down, in a way in which people can pick it up and say, how do I relate to this? What does this mean to me? If you speak it, it is lost. But if it is written, then people can go back and say, hey, this wasn't just to those people. He went to the time and effort to write it down. We have it here before us. What am I going to do with it? We have to understand that there is not only danger from those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that is the least danger that we have. The most danger comes from those who take the truth about Jesus Christ and twist it. The issue that was at stake here that caused such a direct statement about who Jesus Christ was and is, is the issue of the person of Jesus Christ. First, there is a confirmation that Jesus Christ is God from the beginning. Second, and, and there are further proofs than that in here that Jesus Christ was God, but that is the one that begins it. Second, the fact that he was the word of life who appeared. Now, what do we need to make of this? Well, that Jesus Christ is life, being the one who brought life into being, the creator of all life, the one in whom life is embodied, and by contrast, the one in whom there is absolutely no death, no relationship between Christ and death. But there is at the beginning of verse 2 an interesting verb used in the original language, which is phanerao. Okay, now you understand, as we go in, into these sorts of things, as we look this closely at it, we're looking at what the original writings say. We're not looking at specifically an English translation, which might say one thing or might say another. We're looking at the original language. It means to appear, to be revealed, to be made evident or known. So you look at verse 2. The life appeared, that word right there, appeared, whatever it says in your translation. It's phanerao, it means to appear, to be revealed, to be made evident or known. Now in using this word, John is showing that what many have said throughout the ages about Christ, he is proving that what many have said about Christ is totally untrue. People continue to say that Jesus was completely human, and that at his baptism or at some other significant time in his life, God came upon him, and he became at that point divine. The meaning behind the use of the word appear proves that Christ became visible though he existed before he was seen. Okay? Appear. It means you were there before, people just didn't see you. And in appearing, he was still the same person, only he became visible to human eyes. Which takes us to the other extreme, which is laid to rest by John's eyewitness evidence. The other side of heresy concerning the person of Christ. Many people, those called Gnostics among them, claimed that Jesus was fully spirit and that there was nothing physical and nothing human about him. Certainly, considering what John claims he and others saw, heard, and most importantly touched Christ, then that belief is proved to be totally false. For spirit is not flesh, and flesh alone can be touched and felt by human hands. 
Okay, spirit cannot be touched. Spirit cannot be felt. Spirit can be heard and seen. But touch is a word which cannot be doubted. Then that belief is proved to be totally false. But who better than John himself would know of the complete humanity of this Jesus Christ? Because he remembered leaning his head against Christ at the Last Supper. He remembered the roughness of Christ's hands as they washed his feet. He remembered the feel of the nail scars in the hands and the feet after the resurrection. The final thing that we see about Christ before we turn to look at who Christ is in relation to you and to me is this. As we see referred to in the end of verses 2 and 3, we see that he has a special relationship to the Father that is described as Christ is called the Son. Now these things, they're theological truths. Oftentimes such things are hard to take in. And I have to admit, you know, as I was looking at this, I thought, how in the world do you, you know, how do you make that interesting enough for people to take that and say, oh yeah, I need to know that, I need to remember that. I think it's hard to do. But for many of us, the facts that John presents here are long accepted truths. Because they are something that we learn perhaps as kids growing up in Sunday school. Or maybe they are things that our parents taught us in our homes about Jesus Christ. We understand, many of us, as John writes, that Jesus Christ is truly God and exists from eternity. We understand that he became flesh and lived among men, fully God and fully man. We understand that he is the source of all life, as well as the only source of eternal life. We understand that he is one of three persons of the Trinity, that it is the Son and the Heavenly Father, and the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in our passage here. To us, these facts that we read are things that we've come to rely upon, facts that comfort us in every situation, but at the same time, they have probably become facts that we have taken for granted. We probably do not realize the implications that they have in the lives of ourselves and in the lives of others. We, can, we need for them to come to life in our hearts and in our lives. Those of us who have known them for some time, they need to bear fruit so that we too can share them with the enthusiasm and the understanding, not only of exactly what is said, but of exactly what it means to everyone, just as John was sharing them with enthusiasm and understanding. As he wrote this, we have seen it and testified to it, And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. These facts cannot remain cold details in our minds, because what they really are is wonderful, life-giving characteristics of a real Lord and Savior. What we have to understand as we accept these facts is that we have not put our faith in an impersonal God who does not know what our lives are like. Many people like to pretend that others cannot understand what they're going through, their sufferings, unless that person has walked a mile in my shoes. And should someone else do that, we would still deny that they had experienced it to the fullest experience that I have. 
or had walked as far down the road as I have, have suffered as much as I have, have felt the way I have. But the reality of what we see here is that Christ came down and was born, the child Jesus. And he walked many a mile in our shoes, and he walked farther than we have walked, farther than we ever will walk. And so where these things come, where the rubber meets the road on these theological truths, is that Jesus wasn't protected from the temptations we face or the death that we suffer, but went through them just as we do. Only the outcome for him was different because he suffered silently and he was tempted without sinning. He was no spiritual being unable to feel the lash. No spirit who was above the mundane things of the world. Now we think that we have it bad. We think that our sufferings, we think that our temptations are beyond the pale. They are beyond what anybody else could suffer and withstand that suffering and that temptation. And yet Christ felt the lash. He died on the cross. He withstood the temptations that were brought to him by no one less than the great tempter himself, Satan. But again, all of this would be no comfort. It would be no consolation whatsoever if he were only the best of flesh. If he were only the most perfect person that ever lived here on earth. Because as a human being alone, he could offer no help to you or to me other than his teachings and his example. They're great, but they don't help me directly. As God, however, as fully God, it is completely different. Because as the Son of the Father, He has the power. Not only has He lived the life and died the death necessary to offer us a gift we cannot afford to turn down, but He has the power. No man has that power. No man could possibly have that power. We are taught throughout Scripture that salvation does not come from works. It means no man is capable of bringing salvation to himself or to anyone else. And so that is why it is necessary for us to see that that which was from the beginning was Christ. He was there before the creation of anything. He was. He is. He is God. Because if this is not true, then we believe in a great man. And he can't do anything for us. If you believe in a great man, there's no hope. When we get to this point, we can answer the question, who are we in relation to Jesus Christ? And that is another wonderful part of this, of this paragraph here. We see these things. John writes this, We proclaim this to you, what we have seen and heard. Obviously, the intent is that the people will believe it and have believed it, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now this word here, two words in one sermon, think of that. This word here, koinonia, in the Greek, means association with, fellowship with, sharing in, partnership with, a close mutual relationship. 
And so in relation to Jesus Christ, we not only, if we believe these things about him, have fellowship with other believers, which is a partnership with all those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, able to save us. We have a partnership with all those who likewise believe that. But it goes on to say more. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, as a result of the events in the Mideast, we've been watching the news occasionally in the evenings, and last night we had the news on, and we saw this, uh, this ad on ABC about books, about mystical things, okay? And they had this uh, Twilight Zone music going in the background and this curtain being blown out as if it was by some spirit being, And I think we understand easily what people are looking for in these things. What are people looking for when they look to the things that Shirley MacLaine has to offer? What are people looking for when they look to reincarnation? What are people looking for when they look to the Muslim faith? Any of these other things. They want fellowship with God. There is no doubt about it. They want to know that God is someone who is personal to them. <clears throat> and we see this here. With no uncertainty, with no doubt whatsoever. If this is true of you, these things here, do you believe this about Jesus Christ? If it is true, then you not only have fellowship with all others who believe, then you have what is more important? Fellowship with God. A partnership with the one through whom there is all power. We want that. I want it. I'm sure you want it. It is something that is more dear to us. People have searched for fellowship with God before they have searched for anything else. Now, obviously, many people are searching for other things. And they are expecting that that will take the place of fellowship with God. But all the different religions, all the different beliefs... Books like these books that I saw advertised. All of these things prove the people are not satisfied just having fellowship with their neighbor. They want something better than that. And so we look here at this passage and we say, what does it all boil down to? It all boils down to this. Okay. John says, I've seen these things. I've witnessed them. Here is the truth. Take it or leave it. If you take it, then you have fellowship with God. If you believe this, if you will just say in your heart, okay, okay. I've heard it, I've heard it. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He is my Savior. If you believe it, then you have it. And so as we conclude with this, who are we in relationship with Jesus Christ? We see here the foundation of the faith. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, the Savior, then we are people who truly have fellowship with God. And if we don't believe it, then we don't and we can't. So I come and I look at this and I say, 
Theological truths, yes. Things that I was taught a long time ago. But if they don't come out of the paper and jump into my heart through the Holy Spirit's leading, then it doesn't mean anything. It's like that story. Uh, I've used it before, but I really like it. The Sunday school teacher said to the kids, what's brown and furry and jumps from tree to tree? And the little kid who hadn't been paying perhaps too much attention said, well, I know the answer's got to be Jesus, but I can't see how. What we need to do is we need to have the firm foundation of the faith, but it needs to be real in our hearts. And what happens when it's real? We read the last sentence, verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Complete joy comes in the security that these facts are something I believe in my heart. I have fellowship with God. And because I have fellowship with God, I have complete joy. For John, part of that complete joy came in sharing it with others. And the same has to be true of us. If they're hard, cold facts, then we need to pray for them to come to life within us. If they are things that we see and deny, if they are things that we see and yet we're not living as if they're true, then we need today to say, I believe those things. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I want you to come into me, into my heart, that I might have fellowship with you. I'd like to, to, uh, to ask for any who are seeing this, perhaps for the first time the Holy Spirit is bringing it to life in you. As we sing our last hymn, if you want to say, I see that, and I need for Jesus Christ to come to life within me, then come forward, and we'll pray, and it will happen. Because that's the joy of knowing Christ.